following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. So please go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. If you're able, please stand with me as I read God's Word. I'm going to read Romans 13 verses 1 through 7, which tells us that Christians are to be subject to governing authorities. As always, I'm going to read the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God that is authoritative over our lives and binding on our consciences. Romans 13, beginning at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also For the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And Lord, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts in this assembly in our homes, even to the ends of the earth as we take what you say and in your power seek to live it out. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Thank you for the privilege of opening our Bibles, and we pray that you would teach us now. All for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So would you prefer... Good government or bad government? Talk to me. Good or bad? Of course you want good. Would you rather have a good boss or a bad boss? Good one, right? Would you rather have a good teacher or a bad teacher? Good. Okay, that's, that's great. But let me ask you another question. Would you prefer bad government or no government? Don't answer. <laughs> a bad boss or no boss? A bad teacher or no teacher? Now, you might say, well, it depends on how bad. But in general, seriously, in general, bad government is better than no government. It's better than anarchy. Relative order is better than chaos. William Golding's The Lord of the Flies is a horrible, horrifying look at human society with no order. But isn't it sad but true that we who live in relatively stable and reasonably fair government complain often about that government we don't like those that God has ordained over us in lots of different places in the home in the church in schools in other civic places and even to the highest levels of government but it's very interesting I know friends that live around the entire globe and one friend of mine recently said to me as soon as he got on an airplane to come to America he could actually breathe a sigh of relief Because he didn't have to wonder if someone was going to attack him or hold him hostage. 
which both of those things have happened to him. Because he lives in a country where chaos reigns and where anarchy is the rule. So compared to those who have lived under the total breakdown of civil order, I'd say we have it pretty well here in America, wouldn't you? But it remains true, as we're going to see today, that God mercifully governs the world by governments. And what makes this essential, what makes this needed in your life and in my life, is is this. Our hearts are prone to resist authority. Our hearts are prone to resist. They're bent on resisting authority. We have pride issues. We have sin issues. And without order, under appropriate authority, there is anarchy. So it is necessary for Christians to obey governing authorities. Now, for some Christians, you know, obeying governing authorities is easy for them. It's like falling off a log. Uh, they're born supporters. They're, they're the best followers imaginable. Uh, they're a coach's dream. Uh, no pushback. Subjection to them is like autopilot. They're, they're just model citizens. No resistance. They pay their taxes. They support their representatives. They respect their leaders. But for other people... Good citizenship is like pulling teeth. They don't want to do it. So they resist authority. They reject whoever's put over them, and they adopt this stance of like rigid defiance, rigid resistance. There are people that take the law into their own hands. There are people that take the word of God, and they'll twist it and say, well, it means this because this is what I want it to mean. And they make themselves the authority, and they play by their own rule, and here is their rule. My opinion counts the most. My opinion rules. What are Christians to do? Not live like that. Christians are to rejoice in Christ and respect God-given civic leaders. This passage is telling us that, Romans 13, 1-7. It tells us what it means to live in subjection to governing authorities. And, and here's what you're going to find out. It's going to sound strange. I'm going to say it to you right away. Here's what it is. It's a part of your worship. It's a part of your following Christ. It's a part of your discipleship to submit to governing authorities. It's a part of Christian love to do so. See, Romans 13 is anchored in the context of Romans 12. It's sandwiched between teaching on love. Romans 12, 9 through 21, it's all about sincere, uh, courageous, gracious, zealous love. And then you go to the very next passage that we'll look at next week, and you start at verse 8, and it says, don't owe anyone anything except to love them. Suggests that submission to authority is an expression of Christian love. That your love for Christ is evidenced by the quality of your citizenship, or not. Paul is is describing how believers in Rome were to think about their governing authorities. In chapter 12, he gave these intensely practical ways that believers are to avoid conformity to the world and make decisions based on the gospel and the will of God. In verses 9 through 21, he's giving us these examples of here's how you live your day-to-day life under the gospel. Here's how you live the gospel where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, you're to sincerely 
love. You're to hate evil. You cling to what is good. Don't retaliate. As far as possible, be at peace with others. He's writing this to Roman Christians living in Rome that was the seat of this vast empire, the seat of authority of this vast Roman empire. And he's writing to these believers in Rome and he's telling them this is how the believing community ought to think about their rulers in their city. This is going to teach us today. It's going to teach us how believers are to think about the rulers in their city and their state and their country. And by the way, this is a a positive passage of scripture. A lot of people read this and they go, I've got 10 loopholes I've already found. I've got, you know, 10 reasons why verse 3 doesn't apply to me. And I would say this, there are exceptions, but don't let the main point of this passage die the death of a thousand qualifications. Oh, what about this? What about this? Let me just say that there are a lot of people that would say, well, this is the classic clobber passage where you tell Christians you have to, you know, have blind obedience and this is to crush dissent and stifle protest and and just discourage civil disobedience. Let me tell you what this passage is really about. It's about the gospel. This is a gospel passage. We love the gospel. I know you love the gospel. I know you want to do what's right. I know you want to please God. I know you want to obey the word of God. And this passage is going to help you do that. It's going to help me do that. It's a gospel passage, and it's used to foster peace. But we need to understand what's being taught here. And you're going to have to be laborers with me on this. You have to roll up your sleeves and do some hard spiritual work. We're going to have to dig out the truth. We've got to do some excavation here. What is actually being said? And let me give you everything I'm going to say in, in the points of this message right now, and then we'll go through it afterwards. We're going to see this. The, the main point is in verse 1. You know, we're always looking for the main point of a passage right here smack dab in verse 1. Here's the main idea. Submission to government is necessary for a Christian. Submission to governing authorities is necessary for a Christian, verse 1. That's where we're going to start. But there's going to be two reasons given as to why. Two reasons why submission to governing authorities is necessary for a Christian. And the first is found in verses 1 and 2, and it's because of God's sovereign authority. So God's sovereign authority is the first point we're going to see. That's the reason why this is so necessary. Second point is in verses 3 and 4. It's because of God's appointed order. The government is necessary for upholding what is good and just in society. Then in verse 5, we're going to see a summary of this exhortation that's found in verse 1. And then we're going to see in verses 6 and 7 an application. What does it mean to be submitted to governing authorities? And it's going to, it's going to give us this, this idea that it's God-enabled submission on our part. So we're going to see God's sovereign authority. We're going to see God-appointed order. We're going to see God-enabled submission. That's where we're going in this passage. We're going to see a picture of the sovereign authority of God and then the God-given authority of governing authorities and then really a reasonable response on the part of those who are under those authorities. That's where we're going today. Under this main theme, this main idea of submission to governing authorities is necessary for Christians, verse 1. So start with me in verse 1, and we'll just start with the main idea. Submission to government is necessary. Verse 1 says, let every person, so no one's left out, no one's off the hook on this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
So a lot of people will take it in one of two extremes. They'll say, well, I'm going to obey blindly no matter what they say, or I'm just going to put up with it, but I'm going to hate it. And both of those uh, extremes take it too far. Blind obedience takes it too far, and you know, just putting up with it takes it too far. But what does it mean in verse 1 where it says to be subject? This is what we need to understand. What does it mean to be subject to the governing authorities? This idea of being subject is interesting. You might say it means blind obedience. You might say I'm just going to put up with it and not like it. But it means something different than that. Now, first of all, for those of you that say, oh, no, it's about just obedience no matter what, there are three other words in the New Testament translated obey that could have been used here that are stronger. So be subject, that phrase is used 30 times in the New Testament. And sometimes it has the idea of obedience, but sometimes it doesn't. So let's go through some verses that that have this phrase, be subject, or, or submit yourself. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 and 16 says, basically, submit yourself to ministry leaders. Submit yourself to those that are leading ministry. Um, Ephesians 5.21 talks about husbands and wives submitting to one another in the fear of of Christ. So the same phrase, submit yourself, be subject to. In 1 Peter 3.5, it says, wives, be subject to, same phrase, to your husbands as to the Lord. But it's not talking about blind mechanical obedience. Now go over to Titus 3.1 with me. Go over to uh, Titus. We'll look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Paul is writing to Titus, and he's talking to him about uh, putting the church in order in Crete, on the island of Crete. And he gives all these instructions for leadership and sound doctrine and how people are to relate to one another in relationship. And then in chapter 3 he says, remind the church about this. And here's what it is. Remind them. Verse 1, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Same phrase. And then it says to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So you got submission and obedience side by side there in Titus 3.1. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says submit to every ordinance of man, kings and uh, governments and those in authority. Then over in James 4.7, you've got the idea of submitting to God. Submitting to God, be subject to God, and that you're to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what does it mean to be subject? What does it mean to submit yourself? Well, the Greek word hupotasso translates submit or be subject. Here's what it means. Arrange respectfully in an orderly manner underneath those in authority. So the idea behind it is yielding to the social order that God has put in place. That's what the original hearers and readers would have understood this to mean. It's like Philippians 2.3 where it says, Do nothing from selfishness, but esteem others better. Here you apply that by saying this. I'm going to be subject to those God puts over me because I'm going to recognize them as Christ's representatives that they have a greater claim on me than I think they do because they're God's agents. So I'm going to honor them. I'm going to respect them. I'm going to put myself under their authority, not blindly and uncritically, but also not resisting them at every turn. So to be subject, it really starts with the attitude of your heart and mind, okay? It's a lot of people would say, well, I'm just going to do this, but I really don't like it. That's like the child that was told by, by his mother, 
uh, you did something wrong, go sit in the corner over there in that chair. And he says, well, I'm, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You know, I'm going to resist no matter what. So to be subject is an attitude of mind where you recognize God has put certain people over you in authority in certain realms, and you act accordingly. So you yield to them. You, you let another lead you, or you let another group lead you. You, you trust them to lead you, even if it's imperfectly. And you respect them and, and you honor them. This is what a Christian is called to do with regard to governing authorities. Anyone in a position of civil authority. And by the way, there is no qualification in verse 1. This is regardless of how good they do their job or how moral they are or how reasonable they are or any other qualification. The basic idea of submission has behind it the idea of order, that God has ordered things the way he designed them, and we, we recognize a right order in society, and we voluntarily then, we, we deliberately place ourselves under those set over us. And you see this in all sorts of different contexts. Uh, God ordained government over citizens, uh, the church over believers, parents over children, masters over employees. You see this in different realms of life. What you need to understand is, and, and by the way, we're all processing this, right? I don't understand it perfectly. You don't understand it perfectly. We're processing this together in the church, and these are not easy things. But all Christian submission is an expression of our submission to Christ. When you get that straight, because I've been struggling with this passage this week, thinking, I got all these issues I'm dealing with in life, and none of them seem to apply to, this passage doesn't seem to apply to any of them. It's like, this is about obeying governing authorities, but I'm dealing with like four or five, you know, relational brush fires out there as a pastor and, and this isn't really helping me as I'm navigating that. And, but what I realized is when, it's, when this is gospel-centered, when this is gospel-anchored and it's about my submission to Christ, oh, now it makes a lot of sense to me because this is, this is living the gospel and it just so happens that everything we've seen in chapter 12 and what we're going to keep seeing through these final chapters in Romans is here's how you live the gospel in the day-to-day. And so it's about submitting to Christ. We want to submit to Christ in every area of life. In fact, as Christian submission is an expression of your submission to Christ, then then it means this. You submitting does not devalue you or reduce your value. You might be experiencing and exercising leadership in one context and submitting in another. It doesn't make you lesser. A man is not more valuable when he exercises leadership in his home than when he is submitting to church leaders. A woman is not less valuable when she submits to her husband than when she exercises authority over her children. Because, and this is what we have to grasp, this is what, this is what our, our pride fights against. The willingness to submit shows value. The willingness to submit shows value. See, we devalue ourselves when we refuse to submit. We follow God the Son, Jesus Christ, who submitted to the plan of God the Father for our redemption. So here's the headline banner over all of it. Here is the headline banner. 
everyone must submit voluntarily to governing authorities as an expression on the part of believers of submission to God. It's part of your worship. It's part of your discipleship. It's part of your sanctification. The main idea, submission to government is necessary for a believer. And, And let's get into the reasons. Let's get into the reasons. The first reason, we'll still be in verse one and then we'll move into verse two. The first reason is God's sovereign authority. That's the reason. God put structures of authority in his world. It says there, in verse one, there is no authority except from God. So there's no place or rank under, no, no one you, to be subject to or, or even obey except from God. There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by him he's arranged them in their place he's assigned them he's appointed them literally they stand ordained by god authority is a strong word i mean it's the greek word exousia and it it, in this context it's those who've been endowed with political or judicial power and in the context here of submitting to them and even paying taxes yes the holy spirit goes there with us paying taxes It's about an earthly magistrate presiding over the Roman justice system. And for us, you got to apply it to whoever is over us in those realms in our context. It's about God's sovereignty. It's not about my autonomy. For a Christian, it's about God's sovereignty. There is no authority except from God. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. It's unmistakable in the scriptures. The Psalms just cry it out to us. Psalm 62, 11, power belongs to God. Literally, authority is his. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. No higher ruler. He is a sovereign authority in the entire universe. This is why 1 Timothy 6, 15 is so key for us. Speaking of the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so every structure of authority, from the family to the state, is a part of an expression of how God governs the universe. In fact, go to the Ten Commandments and you go to the Fifth Command, the command to honor your father and mother. That's like the tip of the iceberg on the biblical teaching on biblical submission. And this verse, verse one, does not say anything about the spectrum of ways that, that ruling authorities come into power. It could be by a coup. It could be by democratic election. It could be by a force of arms. It could be a hereditary ruler like your dad was the king, so you get to be. And we know humans make a mess of every human power structure, Right? We know this to be true, but beyond whatever mess humans make of power structures, there is a God of order behind that. He is sovereign over the universe. And so verse 2, therefore, logical result, whoever resists sets themselves opposite, literally, uh, the authorities that God has put in place. And what they're doing is they're resisting what God has appointed. Whoever resists the authorities 
resists what God has appointed. You set yourself opposed to or against. You are actually putting yourself against God because God has given human government authority. He has set it in place. And what we are called to do as believers is voluntarily submit to the government, not because of any intrinsic worth that the authorities possess, but because God uses them to provide social order. It is a good thing that God desires. It says that those who resist, that's literally where you stand against and you, you withstand and you oppose. This is the kind of person who resolves in their mind, I'm going to oppose everything they do. I'm 56 years old. I have um, voted for a lot of people. I started voting in 1980 when I turned 18. And I don't know how many presidents I voted for. I don't know how many leaders I voted for. All the people I voted for didn't win every time. And I guarantee you this, every person I voted for, someone else voted against them. But you just take what you get and then you move on. You do what is right. You voluntarily submit to the government, not because of their intrinsic worth or because you know, they're so great, but because God put them there. And by, and by the way, the, the absence of, of proper subjection to authority on the part of a believer reveals a rebellious heart. Where people will say, I'm not going to have any authority over me. They'll even say, God is my only authority. You're right. He's your highest authority. And then you're wrong because he's not your only authority. I mean, some will say this, right? My only authority is God. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. A believer's highest authority is God, but there are authorities that he has placed in our lives, and when we resist them, we are resisting God. This is very serious. I mean, what would happen if you went out these doors today, and and you went into a world that changed while we were, were in here, and now there's no rule of law? I mean, totally, you can do whatever you want, You don't have to stop for stop signs anymore. You don't have to follow the speed limit anymore. But you also have no rule of law and it's total chaos and total anarchy. You're going to walk out those doors to who knows what. You don't want to walk out those doors. Believer's highest authority is God. But if you resist whom God has placed over you in authority, You'll incur judgment, it says. Literally, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who resist God. Re- you resisting God's ordinance, his order. Literally, that's his order, his precept, his command, his decree. It's an imperative here. This passage is filled with imperatives. Like, you have to do it. And if you rebel against his, his ordained authority, you're rebelling against him. So our government is God-ordained, so general obedience to it is, uh, is, is called for. And general disobedience to it is rebellion against God. And if I rebel against God, I should expect consequences. Discipline, punishment, as it says, judgment. And and if you do it in this realm, in this context, you're going to get it from the government for breaking the law. I mean, Christians need to live the gospel in such a way that we live as God has outlined, not as we outline it in our own minds. And what this means is we respect and live under governing authorities, however difficult it might be for you. How often are we to say no to ourselves and yes to Christ? All the time. 
at every turn, you realize there are things that you want that are not in line with what God wants. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ applies to the entire Christian life. So this main idea of submission to government is necessary for every Christian. And this first reason, God's sovereign authority. Government comes from God. God placed structures of authority in his world. And the second point goes right along with it. It's because of God-appointed order. Government is necessary for upholding what is good and just in society. Verses three and four. Verse three tells us rulers are not a terror, literally fear, where we get our word phobia from. They're not a, a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. And then it says this, would you like, would you desire, would you enjoy having no fear of the ones in, in authority? Well, good, just do what's right. Just obey the law. Do what's right. In fact, where it says do what's good, it literally means be generous in doing what is good. Just be really generous about that, and you're going to receive their approval. You'll be commended. Now, you may not get to go to City Hall and get a plaque that's signed and what have you and framed, uh, but they'll be happy with you. They won't be looking for you. God instituted government to reward good and restrain evil. So these rulers, leaders, governors, judges, they hold no terror, uh, they cause no fear for those who do right, who do good works, who do good deeds, because they're really after those who do wrong. And you're gonna get consequences. If you don't wanna be frightened by authority, just do what is right. Romans 12, 17 said, give thought to what is honorable. Just keep doing that, keep just thinking. Just plan out ways to do what is good. And you're not gonna get in trouble. Law-abiding citizens have no fear of authority. And look, I've traveled a lot of places in the world, and I have never gotten in trouble in a foreign country for breaking their laws. I mean, you go there and you're like, I'm going to obey. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get put in jail in a foreign country. But you know what? Most, most governments are not going to harm you if you obey their laws. You just go with it. You could take the policeman test here today as you go out. Here's how it goes. Is a law-abiding citizen happy or afraid to see a policeman? If you're happy to see a policeman when you're keeping the law and you're frightened when you're breaking it, then you know with, with pretty good assurance that that authority generally is doing what God intends. Now, obviously, there are some rulers who terrorize people who do what is right. And they reward those who do what is wrong. That's the anomaly, right? That's the wrong thing. But you know how many biblical examples there are of unjust governments? They're all over the place. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The Hebrews were mistreated by Pharaoh. Uh, Naboth was mistreated by King Ahab, 1 Kings 21. And Daniel's friends mistreated by Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3. Daniel mistreated by Darius, Daniel 6. How about the Jews being mistreated pretty much throughout their whole history? And yet... We have to submit to God. There's, there's no wiggle room there for a, a, a believer. It's just you, you submit to God. You must submit to God. And authorities that are just, they submit to God. Even if they're not acknowledging God, they're still doing what God intends. And our submission to God will be expressed by our submission to authority. Now all of those things, me submitting to God, authorities, 
that are just submitting to God and, and, and my submission to God being expressed by my submission to authority only happens imperfectly at best. On my best day, it's imperfect. But still, I'm called to submit. You see this? There is no wiggle room here. You can't let it die the death of a thousand qualifications. Jesus acknowledged Pontius Pilate's power was given him from above. John 19, 11. Whether, whether he acknowledged it or not, God had put him in power. We have to gain some perspective here. We get lulled to sleep, I think, living in America. Uh, let's gain some perspective, shall we? The people that this letter was originally written to, the Roman Christians living in Rome, Nero was emperor when Paul wrote Romans. I mean, you're not naming your dog Nero unless it's an attack dog, right? The Roman emperor Nero's reputation wasn't fake news. It was real. He murdered his own mom. He murdered his first wife. It was alleged that he murdered his second wife. Whether he fiddled while Rome burned, we do not know. But the fire blazed six days and destroyed two-thirds of the city. It enabled him to rebuild the city how he wanted. Many believe he that he set the fire so that he wouldn't have to go uh, get Senate approval to rebuild the city. But Nero was more an artist than a military man. In fact, he loved to sing. And, and one time it says that he, he gathered more than 5,000 young men to applaud him while he sang. In fact, this is what was said about it. No one was allowed to leave the theater even for the most urgent reasons. You couldn't go to the bathroom when Nero was singing. Suetonius said, it was said that some women gave birth to children there, and that many, worn out with listening and applauding, secretly leapt from the wall because the gates were closed. You couldn't get out. You had to jump off the wall to get out of there. Some people, it said, faked their own death, carried out as if for burial just to get out of there. Nero's not a good guy, but guess what? He didn't do all bad things. He actually did some good things. He respected the Senate. He, he didn't impose his will on them like Caligula did before him. He was actually better than the guy before him. He outlawed re-enslavement of free men. He built large aqueducts to bring more water into Rome. Uh, when the fire you know, swept through Rome, uh, he reformed many building codes so that no fire would ever be so bad as the great fire. He used his wealth to rebuild parts of the city. So he was a very flawed man, but he did a few good things. Some people actually liked him. When Mount Vesuvius erupted and all, a lot of walls were covered with all the, the, the ash and what have you, they, they, they excavated and they found that there were some things written on the walls where they were singing Nero's praises. Overall, very poor leadership. It was said that he wasted money. His armies deserted him after he failed to squash a rebellion. He committed suicide in AD 68 without an heir, without a successor to the throne. He left the empire in chaos. That was the ruler that these Roman Christians were to submit to. I mean, a lot of people live under ungodly leadership or oppressed by godless tyranny. Rulers don't derive their, their legitimacy from, from a people in a democracy or 
heredity from their family or from their wealth or even their sheer force of power. They, they derive it from God. So we need to learn from this passage. And, and, and when a human authority uh, gives itself uh, power to rule against God's law, it will end up oppressing those who want to live under God's law. So if you ask the question, are there any exceptions, is there ever a time to say a holy no? There is one biblical exception. One biblical exception, and it is, it is pretty broadly applied. But the scripture makes one exception, and it's this. When, when, when obedience to civil authority causes you to disobey the revealed will of God in the word of God. When you are called to, to disobey God's word, then you say no. This was done in Exodus 1. Basically, the Hebrew midwives are like, no, we're not going to kill children, even though we're commanded to do so. In Daniel 3, his, all the friends and Daniel, they're like, no, we're going to worship God the way God instructed. The apostles in the book of Acts, they're like, no, we're going to keep preaching the gospel, even if they kill us for doing it. They can make it as illegal as possible. We are not going to keep uh, stop preaching the gospel. Paul said, you know, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. But what is usually the case is that people should obey ruling authorities. Paul was very aware of how much evil ungodly governments can do to the people of God. Paul would not disagree with the call to obey God rather than man when they attempted to you know, squash the preaching of the gospel. But here's the intent of this passage. It's to sketch out the normal relationship that ought to exist between believers and ruling authorities. That we should submit to authority and obey its statutes unless commanded to do contrary to the revealed will of God in the written word of God. Verse four tells us, uh, the authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. He doesn't, bury, he doesn't bear the sword. He doesn't carry the sword for nothing, for no purpose. Uh, that's a, uh, an idiom for, you know, they've got the executive and criminal jurisdiction of a magistrate, the power of punishing evildoers. He's a servant of God, an avenger who punishes evildoers, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In Rome, when there's these Christians in this, in this new church, the Christian community would also uh, look like this private association that the Roman government didn't like. And governing authorities often repressed groups that were uh, too close and maybe considered a threat to social order. Paul may have been concerned that Christians not attract the attention of governing authorities by, by criminal activity. Like, don't get yourself in trouble for that. And don't bring disrepute upon the gospel and suffering to the entire community by doing evil. A few decades earlier, Tiberius kicked Roman Jews out of the city because four Jewish criminals swindled a woman of high standing out of a large sum of money. 30 years later, Claudius ordered the Jews to leave Rome. It's recorded in Acts 18.2. Suetonius says it was because the Jews persisted in rioting at the instigation of another uh, leader that was trying to, uh, to overthrow the governing authorities. Here's what we know. God's purpose stands. And God has put authorities in place to punish those who do wrong and to reward those who do right. It is a mandate from God. Uh, do you notice how many times he repeats in this passage, they are a minister of God? 
They are a minister of God. Uh, they're literally ministering, serving God, and, and for, positively for your good when you do right. Negatively, doesn't bear the sword for nothing. The Old Testament law of uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It wasn't like you, you, know, you punched me in the mouth and broke out my tooth so I get to do that to you. Or you, you gouged out my eye so I get to go gouge out yours. This was a community uh, standard for the collective society to enforce good conduct among people. We, were, we, we saw it last time where in, in verse 19 of chapter 12, it says, leave room for the wrath of God. Christians are not to take the law into their own hands. They're leave room for God's wrath. Uh, that means you gotta trust God uh, to put all things right at the last judgment. But also as you're living now, one of the primary ways God puts out his wrath on evildoers is by punishment administered by governments. You leave room for the wrath of God. You trust your case to due process of law. Yes, knowing that authorities are partial, they're imperfect, they're provisional, but they're agents of the wrath of God. Submission to government is essential for Christians. And, and it first shows because of God's sovereign authority. Secondly, because of God's appointed order. And then you get a, a summary in verse 5. Look at verse 5. You get a summary of the exhortation from verse 1. Therefore, one must of necessity, basically, uh, be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but because of conscience. So not just to get, not get in trouble, but because you know it's the right thing to do, to do what God says. This shows you that your conscience matters. That you can't just say, I'm going to resist because I don't like it. Not as a Christian. You have to have moral sensitivity. You have to have understanding. You're obligated to God. You want to clear conscience before him. You don't want to just avoid punishment. You, you want to do what's right. You want to please God. And this will drive the rest of the passage. You get into verses 6 and 7. The, the practical application it's basically saying you do what you're called to do because you know it's the right thing to do because you love Jesus. Here's the application. It's God-enabled submission, verses six and seven. Look at verse six. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to, now that's an interesting word, attending to, it means they're just doing their work. They're committed to it. They're faithful to it. They're working full-time for the people. They're governing, they're devoting themselves to it. They're attending, they're giving their time and their effort continuously to serve personally. It's like a Christian being devoted to prayer. Tax collectors devoted to collecting taxes. They're doing what God called them to do, even if they don't acknowledge God. And the Roman tax system, like ours, was complicated at times. And um, that economy was you, you, get, you pay taxes either through currency or through resources. You know, in Egypt it was, hey, you're going to pay your taxes with grain. Uh, in Rome it was going to pay your taxes with money. Um, but up to the tax collector to figure that out. When he talks about paying taxes in verse 6, he's saying, look, you're going to pay taxes. The biggest slap in the face was if you were living in a conquered nation, you would have to pay taxes to the nation that conquered you. Slap in the face. Uh, combined income and property tax. But you do it because you know it's right because of conscience. That's why you pay taxes. You understand authorities are God's servants for good. And, and by the way, this word servant, service, is also used for priestly service in the temple. And when was the last time you thought of the IRS as priestly servants of God Almighty? Then look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. 
pay back to all that is what is owed them. It's your obligation, your debt. There's an imperative. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. Four obligations to everyone. He gives two examples of, uh, of uh, paying something uh, in, in a direct way, taxes and revenue. Uh, one was uh, direct, one was indirect. At one point, Nero said, hey, I'm going to get rid of the, direct, the, the indirect tax. And he goes, no, no I changed my mind. Uh, Roman citizens didn't have to pay the direct tax, but they had to pay the indirect tax. So he's like, we can't get them off, let them off the hook completely. So you've got taxes you've got to pay. You've got you to do that. And, and there's going to be taxes levied on stuff you buy, and that's the indirect sales tax and things like that. Paul is, dis- is um, distinguishing between these things. Um, in, in Rome, if you failed to pay your taxes and you were with a group of people that was big enough, uh, that would be considered uh, basically um, declaration of war against Rome. So you get in big trouble for that. So Paul's saying, hey, comply with paying taxes. You don't want to get arrested for that. Keep the social order undisturbed. Uh, and he's appealing to conscience and the sovereignty of God. Because of your conscience, it's because of the God, God's sovereignty. And then from the specifics of tax and revenue, now to the generalities of respect and honor. Because you respect and honor those God has put over you in God's gracious you know, um, ordering of society. Respect, reverence, that's that same word for fear and honor where you value and respect those God has put over you. By the way, if you lived in that day, the Roman emperor on down, they thought that part of their pay for being leaders was to be honored big time in public. Your Christian submission to authority is a practical example of honoring others that God has placed over you. It's an expression of love for Christ. I know it's a strange thought, but godly citizenship is an expression of love for Christ. It's part of your discipleship. You have an attitude of genuine goodwill, a sincere respect, esteem for all public officials. And it does matter what you think. Your attitude matters first. Your heart thoughts towards those leaders. Uh, We are witnessing in our time this unfiltered repudiation of authority in the home, uh, civic, uh, government, police, education, just all over the place, you see this unfiltered repudiation of authority. Uh, there, there are those that say, I'm going I'm to obey it, I won't like it, or I'll make my displeasure known as often as I can. And I will just say that I, I, I think what happens for a Christian that goes there is they give themselves way too much leeway, way too much credit, and they, and they want to judge others. And, and we forget the debt of sin that Jesus paid on our behalf at the cross. We forget the shed blood of Christ in our place that took the wrath of God in our place. Uh, Jesus died for you who resisted as his enemy. And I think sometimes our desire to, to not submit to authority really has nothing to do with obeying God. It has to do with our selfish desires. And here's the aim of these verses. The aim is that we would all be humbled under the grace of God and that we would become better citizens. It's entirely possible. We are are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We are first under King Jesus' authority. 
You take the first 11 chapters in Romans and it's giving us the doctrines of God's grace in Christ. And from chapter 12, verse one onward, it shows where do those doctrines lead. Puts it out front, says, we have these doctrines of sovereign grace so that we would live under the sovereign hand of God. That we would be churches shaped by grace and harmony in a hostile world. This is what God intends So here's what you are to do for governing authorities. You are to show as much respect as you can to governing authorities rather than trying to debunk them or disrespect them. And I'm talking uh, politicians and policemen and parents and teachers and others. We are to live transformed in this age. We are to, we are to be unconformed. We, we are to live with this age with our values and behavior anchored in Christ so that we would actually show Christ to be glorious. So we live under authority at every level, national and local and in management and business and in teachers and administration at school and all the way through. And yes, those God puts over us aren't perfect but they're placed there by God. We are to honor them and pray for them. The governing authorities, if, if you're one of those amongst us, you're a governing authority, police, government, others, thank you for your part in, in keeping the peace. And, and we thank God for you. We should be praying for you. The Book of Common Prayer actually asked the British citizens to pray that God would so rule in the heart of thy chosen servant Elizabeth, our queen and governor, that she, knowing whose servant she is, may above all things seek thy honor and glory. That should be our prayer for everyone in every realm. Don't take the law into your own hands. We are not arbiters of justice. God's word is our authority. God is our guide. And we submit to God's sovereign authority by submitting to those God has placed over us. Amen? This is our calling. Let us pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we can acknowledge that you have put authority over us and, and that we would obey you by honoring others and respecting others. We know it is necessary because of what you have said and because of your sovereign authority and because of your appointed order and, and that you foster, you foster our submission. You enable it and, and we praise you for it. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.